morning, everyone. Uh, we're now two weeks into Advent, which is that time of year every year uh, when we're encouraged to actually take time out to just stop, to just stop to reflect and to prepare our hearts to celebrate the first coming of Jesus and also to anticipate the second coming. But in theory, that's all a great idea. But in practice, I don't know how you find stopping or taking time out, whether or not it is a real challenge. Because for lots of us, life is probably even busier during Advent than it is at almost every other time of the year. Presents to buy and wrap and distribute and cards to write and newsletters to send, meals to plan and prepare, office parties to enjoy or endure, uh, choir practices to uh, arrange and attend, family and friends to visit, nativity plays to watch. And all of this goes alongside everything else that still has to be done. As one mum said, it's silent night time again, but all is not calm. The kids are in a sugar-induced, jingle-bell-fueled state of hyperactive euphoria. Hubby, Scrooge isn't much help, and every day is a blur of furious activity. I don't know if any of you can relate to that as far as December is concerned. But the truth is that unless we take time out, unless we create some space in our daily schedules and spend some time actually preparing our hearts in prayer and reflection, then the truth of Christmas, or the real meaning of it, is going to get inevitably lost in the busyness and the mayhem. That's why something like Project 25 is so good. Because it actually just acts as a reminder to stop, to pause, to engage And I don't know how you have found doing this. And if you haven't had a chance to start it yet, as Tim has said, there are cards at the back with another 13 days to go. But it's also why we wanted to spend four services during December focusing on Advent. Because rather than simply observing Christmas from a distance or simply observing Christmas in a hurry, what we actually want to do is immerse ourselves in the drama to actually somehow, physically in a sense, step into the story. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in, in his book about Christmas, writes, if we want to be part of the Christmas story, and I sense that so many of us do, but if we want to be part of the Christmas story, we cannot just sit like a theater audience and enjoy the play. Instead, we have to get caught up in the script. And that is our hope for this year. That during Advent, as we stop and as we reflect and as we pray and as we prepare, that we will actually get caught up in the script. We'll get lost in the script rather than get lost in the madness. But this morning, as we've already been thinking about, the theme, the Advent theme that we want to look at is joy. There are four Advent themes. Peace, as Bennett looked at last week. Joy, as we're looking at this morning. Hope, as Heather's going to look at tonight. And then next Sunday morning, Stevie's going to take us through Advent People of Love. And joy is absolutely central to the Christmas story. In fact, you could say it is the most pervasive theme of the Christmas story. And for example, if you just read the birth narratives in Luke, what you find is people bursting into songs of joy. 
And so Mary does it in response to the news that she is going to carry the Son of the Most High God in her womb. And when she hears that, she just sings. And here are some of the lyrics. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then there's the song that the entire choir of angels sing to a bunch of bewildered shepherds on a Judean hillside. I bring you, says one of them, good news that will cause great joy to all people or for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah or he is Christ the Lord. And Peter has referred to that verse on a number of occasions this morning. And then there is that righteous and devout guy who when he's holding this little fragile life in his hands, he bursts into song. And he just says, thank you, God, that I have seen salvation. His name was was Simeon. So joy is very much part of the first Christmas. And that's understandable. Because it's important to remember that the people of God had been waiting for years for this to happen. The sense of anticipation, the intense desire for this moment was very real. Because centuries prior to this history-defining moment, prophets had prophesied that one day, someday, a Messiah will be born. He's going to come. And as one of the most famous or best-known Old Testament prophets said, he's going to be a wonderful counselor. A mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But literally hundreds of years had come and gone since that announcement and other announcements just like it. But here and now, in this town of David, today, a Savior has been born. He is Messiah the Lord. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. The Rescuer. The deliverer has arrived. Problem was, not everybody got it. Not everyone shared the joy. Not everyone felt like singing. Herod certainly didn't. His response to the news was to become the ultimate killjoy. He ordered, he sanctioned the slaughter of every single boy under the age of two. And even the expectant people of God, or at least a huge majority of them, they didn't quite get it either. Because this was not what they expected. Whenever they thought about Messiah, dreamt about Messiah, dreamt about Christ the Lord, they weren't expecting this vulnerable baby born to a couple of nobodies in some backwater called Bethlehem. That was not what they were wanting. So they just did not get it. And so the birth of Jesus led to suspicion and fear for some. Or else profound disappointment. Shattered illusions for others. Not joy. And that was, and that continues to be the real tragedy. Because one of the distinctive features about Advent joy is that it is for everyone. The birth of Jesus is good news that causes great joy for all people. In other words, there's no exceptions. Well, there are no exceptions unless you choose to be one. The message of this season is indeed joy to the whole world. But sadly, not everybody got it then. And we all know that not everybody's going to get it this Christmas either. Not everybody's going to sense the joy that is for all people. 
and the bit that they couldn't get. And the bit that people still don't get, because in a sense, the nativity play, just the idea of this little baby born into a manger, that's okay. That's nice. But the, the bit that people couldn't get originally, nor get today, is the actual identity of the Christmas child. It's this bit of what the angel said. That he is going to be a saviour. He is going to be a rescuer. He is going to be a deliverer. He is going to be the Messiah. He is going to be the Lord. In other words, this baby was unique. This little life that was just wrapped in those swaddling clothes, lying in the manger, was born to save. And and that's the bit people just did not get. Because that just did not make any sense. And whenever Joseph was struggling to get his head around the fact that his wife was now pregnant, in a dream an angel said to him, listen, you're going to call this baby Jesus. Why? Because he is going to save his people from their sins. And as I mentioned a moment ago, whenever Simeon was holding that fragile little life in his hands, he said, thank you, God, I've seen salvation. It's more than just a baby. I've seen salvation. The kid lying in the manger called Jesus is a saviour, born to you. Born, in other words, to save you from your sin. Born to rescue you from darkness. Born to deliver you into wonderful life. Born to offer you life to the full. Born to speak words of eternal life. Born to lay down his life for you. Born to welcome you into the kingdom of God. That's what this season is all about. That's what brings joy. And so, hopefully, as we get caught up in the script... As we immerse ourselves in the story, we will rejoice along with the angels and along with the shepherds and along with Mary and along with Elizabeth and along with Zechariah and along with Joseph and along with Simeon and along with Anna and those who did get it. But as we continue to think about this Advent theme, I want us to reflect on what exactly is the unique feature or aspect or nature of joy. What does joy actually look like? How does it impact your life and mine. And one of the, the key things I want us to think about, and maybe the main thing I just want to focus on, and in trying to get our heads around this, is explain that joy is not the same as happiness. It's so easy to get these two things confused. And yet they are very, very different. I mean, if you ask lots of people, what is it you want in life? What is it you want out of life? I'll guarantee you that one of the answers that will feature strongly whenever you ask people that is, I just want to be happy. I just want my family to be happy. And why not? Because who doesn't want to be happy? Madonna was once asked straight out, listen, are you happy? She said this, I'm a tormented person. I'm wrestling lots of demons, but I want to be happy. I have moments of happiness. And for lots of people... The reason that they do many of the things they do is for the purpose of finding happiness. That's what motivates us. I want to be happy, so this is what I'm going to do. And so I'm going to work hard, I'm going to earn more, I'm going to buy more, I'm going to acquire more, because in the hope that that will make me and my family happy, or at least it will make us happier. People pursue fame. They seek entertainment again. Why? Well, it will make me happy. And at times... And on occasions, these things do deliver. Because let's be honest, having a pile of money and having very few financial concerns does bring a certain level of happiness and satisfaction. 
Simon Cowell was recently given an International Emmy Award in America. And during his acceptance speech, he said this, whoever said money, fame, and success will destroy you is completely wrong. See, he's a happy guy. He is. Or so it would seem. But the problem with happiness is that it does deal with what's happening. And therefore, it's very dependent on your circumstances. It's very dependent on what actually is going on in your life at the moment. Because whenever things fall apart, whenever an economy crashes, the money runs out, the fame and the fortune gets ripped away from you. When your health deteriorates or your plans for your future fail, happiness has got this habit of disappearing and dissolving before your very eyes. If life's going well and everything and everyone around you is sorted and everything's together, then you can be happy. There's no doubt about that. You can be happy. But for the reality is, for most of us, mess happens. It's inevitable. Pain, frustrations, hard times come crashing into every single one of our lives. And in those moments, happiness all of a sudden seems rather elusive. And so I think it's really interesting to discover that despite the fact that people want to be happy, that for the majority of people, if you ask them, what is it you want out of life? They say, I want to find happiness, that the Bible doesn't actually mention it much. The Bible doesn't deal with happiness in any great detail. But what it does talk about a lot is joy. And joy is something it would seem much, much deeper and far more permanent than mere happiness. Happiness, as I said, tends to deal with what's happening, whereas joy is an inner sense of being. It's got nothing to do with our circumstances. Or, as James Greenwood reminded me a couple of years ago, happiness happens, joy abides. And someone has observed that in the English language, joy is a really interesting word because it doesn't have an automatic opposite created by adding dis or on to it. So, for example, there's pleasure, displeasure. Satisfied, dissatisfied. Happy, unhappy. But there's no disjoy or on joy. And according to some, there's a reason for this, that joy is something you can have regardless of what's going on in your life. Joy is not dependent upon the circumstances of life. It is a much more spiritually dynamic emotion and reality. And the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Is that your experience? That no matter what is going on in your life, you have joy. You can manufacture pleasure and happiness to a certain extent. Of course you can. But you can't manufacture happiness or joy. Here's how Billy Graham put it. Joy cannot be pursued. It comes from within. It is a state of being. It does not depend on circumstances but triumphs over circumstances. It produces a gentleness and a magnetic personality. Joy comes from within. And it's found in the Lord. Now, last week, if you were here, you might remember that Dorothea quoted quite an extensive 
section of scripture as part of the exercise we did on No Bible Sunday. And Dorothea quoted from Habakkuk chapter 3. Here's the words. Though the tree does not bud, and there are no grapes in the vines, though the olive crops fail and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Now if you pause there, you can't help but sense whoever is saying this, his life is falling or is falling to pieces. There's nothing very happy to be there's nothing to be very happy about. His circumstances are bleak. And yet, what does this go on to say? Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And how countercultural is that? That true joy for him is not found in outward circumstances. He's not going to complain, despite the fact that he's got tons to complain about. And he's not going to blame anybody else, and especially he's not going to blame God, which is what many people today tend to do. Instead, what he says is, you know what I'm going to choose to do? Even though all this has fallen apart around me, yet I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to rejoice in God, my Savior, because that is where authentic, deep, meaningful, and true joy is found. And if you come into the New Testament, it emphasizes that teaching. It's reinforced. Paul says, yet, I'm sorry, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. What exactly does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? See, whenever things are falling apart around you, it's really hard to know what it means to rejoice in the Lord. But we've got to. And I don't know exactly how you do that. But it's got something to do with realizing exactly who he is. And what he has done for you. And so Paul, just a couple of chapters before he says this, he writes, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. Rather, He made himself nothing. Taking the nature of a servant, he being made in human likeness, he humbled himself. And being found in appearance as a man, in other words, there's the truth of Christmas, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And for me, that's what it means to rejoice in the Lord, is to say, okay, Jesus, this is who you are. And this is what you have done for me. That somehow you made yourself, and I don't understand, you made yourself nothing. And you came here on that first Christmas. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. But not only that, you obediently laid down your life for me. Therefore, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. But the second aspect of that, again, is a word that it troubles me. Always. In all circumstances. Now, it's not rejoice for all circumstances. That would be bizarre. In fact, that would be weird to rejoice for all circumstances. What this is saying is you rejoice in all circumstances. And you can only do that. You can only do that 
Because rather than being focused on your circumstances, you reach a place where you're focused on the Lord. And for me, that's why Advent is so important. Because it's another reminder of a time to pray, to reflect, and to get my thinking right. So that I'm focused on God and not on what's going on around me. And that for me, if you like, is the secret to real joy. Now, does that mean, I'm nearly done, does that mean that what you're going through doesn't matter? Or you should just ignore it? Or deny that it hurts? Because there will be many people here this morning, or people that you know, and you're not in a good place. I mean, if you were really honest with me this morning, you'd say, I'm not in a good place. In fact, so much of the service has just passed me by. Because there's stuff going on in my life, there's stuff going on in my heart that is just consuming me. And I know that I'm meant to rejoice in the Lord, but that's not the reality for me this morning. It might be for the people beside me, in front of me, behind me, it's not the reality for me. And so are you just saying, somehow ignore what's going on in my life and just rejoice in the Lord? I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that you ignore the pain. I don't, I'm not suggesting that you deny what is very real to you this morning. But I've got to go back to Philippians chapter 4 because for me, this is the critical bit in getting my head around this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving present your request to God and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus and the thing I want to say this morning is this the Lord is near the Lord's not distant he's not removed from your life or from what's going on he's not disinterested he's there with you he's there for you and what does he say he wants you to pray And often what happens in our circle, whenever we're going through life and stuff crashes in around us, we stop praying. We stop spending that time with God, crying out to Him, opening up our hearts to Him. And yet for me, prayer and joy are so closely linked. We present our requests to God, we express our hearts, we share our pain, we talk to God. And then, and this is the incredible promise that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will actually protect us from unnecessary anxiety. Is that your experience? Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Let me just summarize what I've tried to say as we finish. The good news of Christmas that causes great joy is found in the coming of Jesus. A Savior, a Messiah, a Lord who had been expected for years, but not everyone got it, and they still don't. But the truth is that the one who will save you, the one who can save you, has been born to you. 
And if you accept him, then the joy proclaimed by the angels will reside in your hearts. Deep within you. Not a happiness that's dependent upon upon our external circumstances, but a deep joy that is a profound state of being. Happiness happens, joy abides. Final thought. Love this. Mark Twain said, Some people bring joy wherever they go. Some people bring joy whenever they go. And you know, if all people... Christians should be those who bring joy whenever, wherever they go. Bring joy wherever they go. I don't, I don't know if Stacey Solomon's a Christian. Did you ever see someone who just brought joy wherever they went? Annoying, yes, but brought joy. And if, there's lots of people have asked the question, is Stacey Solomon the happiest person in the world? I don't know. But I hope and I pray that she discovers true joy. Charles Swindle actually comments that a joyless Christian is a walking contradiction. A joyless Christian is a walking contradiction. And G.K. Chesterton said this. Joy, which is the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. And so this Christmas I do hope and pray that we will be a people of joy who will share this gigantic secret with everyone we meet.